morning. Uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the pastor who uh, most weeks gets the opportunity to open up the scriptures with the church as we gather in this place and with those who may be uh, even coming in to explore the truth claims of Christianity with us. I will warn you, my wife went out of town this weekend and it was just me and our five-year-old and four-year-old daughters. And uh, I always walk away from those kind of weekends respecting my wife immensely. I'm like, how many dishes can possibly pile up in the matter of like two hours? And it's like a mountain. It's like, like Jesus went up on a mountain and it wasn't dishes for Jesus, but in our house, it was a mountain of dishes. And um, I'm reminded of how weak and sad I am as a man. And so I'm gonna begin by praying for us because I feel very much out of, out of my own mental state this morning in light of this weekend. And we're gonna, we're gonna get going this morning. Let's pray. God, what a privilege as I've said for weeks now, that we get to sit at the feet of the greatest preacher that the world has ever known, Jesus Christ. That we get to sit with the greatest sermon ever preached in all of human history. Jesus, we get to, to grow an understanding of, of what it is to, to come under the banner of your kingship, to live our lives in accordance with what it is to be a citizen of your good kingdom, a kingdom that will be consummated someday as you come to set all things right. In the meantime, this morning we get to see what it is to live in the midst of, of a collision of sorts, uh, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. As we look back even into last week's passage and see this idea of persecution and get to tease that out a little bit more this morning. God, would you, would you move? Would you, would you work powerfully in this room over the course of these moments that we have together with your scriptures open? Spirit of God, we're desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. I pray that, that you would do, in essence, what we see Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, that you would use a, a weak, needy, seemingly insignificant man to proclaim the good news of the gospel, hope of the kingdom of heaven. God, that we would all walk out of here marveling at who you are and what you've accomplished for us through King Jesus. And that we would see that living in accordance with our citizenship simply can have great impact on the world around us, um, that we would be people who would, simply by living in accordance with who we are in Christ, would have great impact on, on the world for your glory, Father. Got to pray that if there are any in this building this morning who are not followers of Jesus, that they would be compelled by the gospel this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, if you are new, if this is your first week, just to kind of catch you up to speed, uh, we are currently in a sermon series that we began just a few weeks ago, and so you've come in at, at a good time. It's a series entitled The Way of the King, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a series that we're going to be in leading all the way up to the season of Advent, so just after Thanksgiving 2019. We're looking over the course of this series at the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red letter text in all of the Bible, meaning that these are Jesus's words filled with teachings familiar to both Christians and non-Christians alike. Things like turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, 
judging not lest you be judged. Nothing more than fortune cookie statements to some from the lips of a man who is nothing more than a, a moral teacher and philosopher. And yet, even the most cursory reading of Matthew's gospel account reveals that view of Jesus to be absolutely nonsensical because Jesus himself said he was God. Jesus himself said he was sinless. Jesus himself told us to pray to him as God. Jesus himself said that he is the only way to heaven. Based on the things that Jesus said during his public ministry, Jesus was either a liar, an absolute crazy man, or exactly who he said he was, the son of God. Jesus speaks with the authority of the divine, calling us to to come under the reign of his kingship, this radical turn in direction from the kingdom of this world, trusting that his kingdom is a better kingdom because Jesus is a better king. And if you're a Christian, you already know that to be true. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter five. We'll be in verses 13 through 16 this morning. You may be thinking, wow, four verses. This may be one of those brunch weeks. It won't be. I'm gonna go ahead and give you the expectation up front. It's mind-blowing how it works that way, isn't it? If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible, use it this morning during your time with us. You can take that with you if you don't own a Bible or the one that you do happen to have is, is maybe difficult to track with in terms of its translations. A lot of ye olds and things like that. The Bible under the chairs doesn't have that. As you're opening up, let me just Let me just go ahead and and set the stage for where we've come over the last couple weeks. Don't have time to deeply unpack it the way I've sought to uh, over the past uh, first couple of weeks of this series, but suffice it to say that, that the message that Jesus made central to his ministry is the kingdom. If we think of Jesus apart from the kingdom, we've missed something of who Jesus is and what he's about. The, the unfolding story of the Old Testament is a story of God's people failing to live in glad submission to his kingship, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, bringing upon themselves the recurring themes of judgment and exile as you read throughout the Old Testament, so that when you get to the prophets of the Old Testament, you, you see this hope that God will someday return to bring salvation, establishing his reign over this broken humanity. Matthew goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets from the messianic line of King David, a son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to the nations. That the king has arrived, Matthew is declaring, and with the arrival of the king comes the arrival of the kingdom. Kingdom is drawn near. It's been inaugurated in the coming of the king, you might say, and yet it's ongoing as it moves toward its consummation in the return of the king someday to set all things right. The Sermon on the Mount is the king himself proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23, the good news of the kingdom. Going back to last week, Jesus has just pronounced his his statements of blessing, the beatitudes as they're commonly referred to, describing the beauty of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. You have this collection of, of blessings that reverse the standards and values of the world, evidencing the standards and values of the countercultural kingdom of heaven kingdom so countercultural that, that those who buy in, Jesus says, are sure to experience persecution, going back to verses 10 through 12, simply for living in accordance with their citizenship under the reign of heaven's king. The poor in spirit, Jesus describes them as. The lowly and meek, the merciful, the seemingly insignificant according to the standards of this world. This morning, 
Jesus is going to further unpack this idea of a seemingly insignificant countercultural people radically impacting the world around them for the glory of God. And he's going to do so by taking us back to grade school, to the figure of speech known as the metaphor, simile's best bud. The purpose of the metaphor, if, if it's been a while for you, maybe you haven't cracked open a grammar book in quite some time, a literature book, a metaphor seeks to make a comparison between two things, simply put, suggesting a likeness of some sort. This is what Jesus says, picking up in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light. Very famous passage of scripture. Many of us have probably read it numerous times in this room. The two things to which Jesus likens those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus doing here? Well, in some sense, it's a, it's a continuation of the first 12 verses of chapter 5. We wouldn't expect something so seemingly small and insignificant as salt to impact the earth, the poor in spirit. Or something so seemingly small as a glimmer of light to impact the world or, or to illumine all in a house, the lowly and meek. It's a, it's a declaration that Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world, turning the standards and values of the world upside down on their head. So that the, these word pictures don't just tell us something of what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but also what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of this world. So that saltiness and illumination have their contrasting opposites, which we'll get to in, in just a second. Those contrasting opposites helping to see why conflict, going back to verses 10 through 12, is inevitable. We're talking about the clash of two irreconcilable value systems, you might say, which is sure to bring about opposition, conflict, maybe even persecution. The seemingly strong preying upon the seemingly weak to go back to the Beatitudes, and yet through seeming weakness, God reveals himself strong in these verses. He says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. Salt's cheap, right? I don't know that anybody in this room would be able to share a story of having gone bankrupt on a, a salt investment. And yet, its preserving, healing, and seasoning effects are far spreading. There were no refrigerators in first century Palestine, right? No whirlpools, no Kenmores, no Frigidaires. Take a stab at your favorite brand, Couple that with the reality that we're talking about a first century Palestinian climate. Like just imagine in, in that context, meat without preservatives. Would have gone really bad really quickly, right? Salt was a, it was a preservative. It was used to keep meat from decaying and rotting. Jesus says, such are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Like what, what is Jesus saying about the world by contrast in saying that? He's saying that this world is decaying in some sense. He's taking us back to the loss of the garden in Genesis 3. 
We, we know, those of us who have read the scriptures and know the story of the Bible, the one overarching story, that there was a time when there was no decay in the world. There was no sin, a world that God declared good. And yet, Genesis 3, God's first king and queen of creation, to use the language that I've used in framing this series, rebelled against the greater king of creation, choosing a life of judicial autonomy, a life of self-determination. And out of that rebellion, the kingdom of this world was established, a world come unraveled. Everything you could say went into decay mode. Everything started spiraling toward death. And not just physical death, we've talked about this many times as a church, though that's part of it. You and I, we're we're destined to die a physical death. I don't think that's news to anyone unless Jesus comes back or, or does that Elijah thing and lifts you up by the seat of your pants like the lifted Lorax. But it's also a a spiritual death. The the umbilical cord between us and God has been severed relationally so that should we die physically while spiritually severed from God, we will experience eternal death, eternal decay apart from God's blessing forever. And it's a problem that the scriptures say none of us can remedy on the basis of our own merit. Going back to last week, citizenship in the kingdom of God is on the basis of a supernatural work of God's grace by which people dead in their sins and trespasses are made alive in Christ, made citizens of the kingdom of heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. The king came to die in the place of law-breaking rebels like you and me. That's the gospel. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He conquered our great enemies of sin and death through his triumphant, victorious resurrection so that we serve a living king. As you sing, he's alive. A king who will someday return to do away with decay and rot forever, amen? So that we might experience the greatest happily ever after, to use that fairy tale language, we're talking about a king and his kingdom. Why would we not? The greatest happily ever after the world's ever known. But until then, we live in a world filled with death and decay, Jesus says. A world in which he calls us, his followers, if you're a Christian, to be salt, And actually, he doesn't call us to be salt. He says, you are salt, right? It's not even a command. It's an identity statement. And not just you as individuals, though that's true. The word you in this verse is plural. Jesus is saying, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they have this preserving power, this battling to fight off decay kind of of power. When we live in accordance with our citizenship under the reign of heaven's king, we actually function as, as a preservative of sorts in society, Like salt water brings healing to a wound, the church is God's plan to bring healing to a a world ravaged by the effects of the fall, you might say. That where there is no salt, there will be decay, for sure. Even in in a land, think about this, of nice homes and well-manicured lawns. Even in the land of suburbanism at its finest. See, here's the reality that many of us know too well. We try to hide it behind our signage covenants, behind our well-manicured front and backyards, behind our pressure-washed homes. Behind all of that lie the remnants of the fall. When the garage doors go down, broken marriages, parents living vicariously through their children, alcohol and substance abuse, deeply rooted idols of comfort, control, approval, power, and so forth and so on, not to mention the the going through the motions religious ritualism in, in this epicenter of cultural Christianity, that behind the veneer is a hidden decay, 
which Jesus would, would actually go on to address later on in Matthew's gospel account in his pronouncement of woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23 Verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. It's like, I don't know if you, you ever do this, but maybe you tuck away some leftovers in the fridge in a Tupperware that's not one of those see-through kinds and you forget about it for a little while, and you go to grab it, maybe even forget, what, what, what was in that one? And all looks right in the world on the outside, right? Until you crack that lid and all of a sudden rot and decay come forth and hit your nostrils in a way that tells you that what's inside is dead. It's, it's, it's rotten, it's decaying. That's somewhat of, of what Jesus is getting after here. He goes on to say it in another way in the next verses of Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I'm reminded of last fall, in the wake of finding out that my, my grandfather was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and going to, to visit him and, and walking into the, the room where he lived his life essentially in this nursing home as, uh, as he was looking toward his death and to walk in and to see this glow on his face, to see this, uh, this, this color to his cheeks and this warmth in his smile and yet to know that on the inside, something was eating his lungs away. That there was death on the inside. When Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, that word, it essentially means pretenders, play actors, theater actors. He's saying you're dressing the part of a righteous person. On the outside, all looks right, but you're not. Things appear to be in order externally, but on the inside is death and decay. Coming back to this morning's passage, we can declare ourselves to be salt. We can do that all day long. But if there's nothing but, but death on the inside, but decay and rot on the inside, we're not what we profess to be, no matter what the outside of the cup looks like. And yet Jesus says, not so for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Christian, he declares you to be the salt of the earth, an agent of healing by God's grace in a world filled with death and decay, simply by living in accordance with our citizenship, I mean, think about this for a second. Some of you, if you were to go back to when you became a Christian, you could pinpoint someone in your life who was a follower of Jesus, who simply lived in accordance with their citizenship, and something about that impacted you. It had a radical effect on you such that it's now a part of your conversion story when you look back at when you became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That, that there's some encouragement in this in the sense that we're, we're, we're not asked to do something that is over-the-top miraculous, though it is, but rather something quite ordinary, which is simply to live the Christian life in light of who we are and who we've been made in Christ. You are salt. It's an identity statement for those who belong to the king. But not only does salt function as a as a preserving healing agent, it also has a, a seasoning and, and thirst-provoking effect, does it not? 
which, which I think says something in contrast about the blandness of the kingdom of this world. One of the privileges that we have as Christians is we get to put on display the savory life, you might say. The, the, there's this taste about us that Jesus talks about right there in verse 13, a life of satisfaction in Christ. But there's also this thirst-provoking effect. Eat something salty, you're sure to get thirsty very quickly, right? We all know this to be true. When Jesus came onto the scene, he, he had this way of showing people that their souls were parched. From Nicodemus to, to the woman at the well to Zacchaeus up in that tree. And as followers of Jesus, he, he's saying we have that kind of impact too. Like, there are people who won't know that they are spiritually soul parched until they rub shoulders with you. How crazy is that? To think about that, that God's placed you in this moment in time, in this place in time, so that he might do that in and through you to expand his good kingdom and build his church. That you get the sweet opportunity to point people to the living water in whom thirsty souls find their fill, just like Jesus with that woman at the well in John 4. You are the salt of the earth. So much packed into that, right? What a sweet role that, that you and I as Christians get to play in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, assuming that we don't lose the very essence of who we are. What good is salt without the property of saltiness? It's useless. Some believe that to be a statement about our salvation as individuals. Maybe, maybe that's true. It seems in context to be more about the loss of impact and witness in the world. Remember, this is a, a plural you, so that where my mind immediately goes is, is those uh, letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three, where to mix metaphor here and to jump early on into the you are the light of the world language, Jesus says to a group of churches who are losing the essence of who they are, that he just might remove their lampstand, which is to remove their witness in the world. The corporate witness of the church failing to stand in contrast to the kingdom of this world. Jesus won't allow for that. The word from which we get, get the phrase lost its taste or become tasteless, uh, it's kind of an offensive word. It's the Greek word moronthe. It's where we get the word moron. Now, outside of the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's only used in two other places. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where Paul talks about God making foolish the wisdom of this world, showing it to be moronthe, that you have this contrasting wisdom of God, wisdom of the world, two competing kingdoms, to use that, that language that we've been talking for the past few weeks. And then you see it one other place, Romans 1, very famous passage where Paul talks about the foolishness, moronthe, of worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, Remember the Sermon on the Mount, it's a tale of two kingdoms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of this world. To chase after the things of this world, Jesus in some sense is saying, it's a fool's errand. It renders us bland and useless in bringing contrast between those two kingdoms. Encouragingly, to live in accordance with our citizenship in heaven has the power to radically impact the world around us for God's glory. Jesus goes on to say, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. P picture this for a second. All right, uh, biblical feasts, 
Some of us know, you know, some of the, like the Passover would be one of those feasts. Another one, the Feast of Tabernacles. Get, get this picture in your mind. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this celebration meant to commemorate Israel's dependence upon God as they wandered through the wilderness, going back to the Old Testament. On the final evening of that feast, every year, the temple officials would light four lamps in the temple courts. And then in addition, people would light torches as they celebrated their way through the night so that the light from those lamps and torches were so bright that they would light up the entire city. You just picture this, this city in the darkness of night all of a sudden lit up like a Christmas tree. For the Jews, no doubt, it would have taken them back to the wilderness wanderings of the Old Testament, the presence of God in the pillar of fire, if you remember the story, that led them through the Egyptian desert in the darkest hours of the night. It's in that context that Jesus comes onto the scene and speaks up, John 8, 12, and says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Like for a first century Hebrew, that, that imagery would have invoked a, a, a number of, of thoughts and images. Not only that pillar of fire that led them through the Egyptian desert, but, but the very light that God spoke into existence in the story of creation, going all the way back to the beginning you, you have David in Psalm 27 declaring these famous words, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David declares God to be his light, his hope. Light's associated with God. It's associated with his work of creation and redemption. The prophet Isaiah in declaring the coming of the Messiah says this, Isaiah 9, 2, another famous passage of scripture. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah declares that the coming Messiah will be a light entering into the darkness. John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel account, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. John's talking about Jesus there. Many of you know that. He declares himself to be the hope of salvation Jesus does using this light metaphor while also declaring something about the world in which we live again. Through the salt metaphor, Jesus is saying the world is decaying. The world is bland. The world is wounded. The world is soul parched. Through the light metaphor, Jesus is simply saying the world is a dark place. In one sense, we've talked about this many times before. Man hates the dark. All it takes is a power outage, right? I don't know about you guys. My wife cripples in fear. Like the minute the power goes out, the minute the lights go out, it reveals man's innate fear of the dark. There's something about light that subdues our fears. That light at the tunnel imagery, uh, at the end of the tunnel imagery, it brings hope in contrast to the, the hopelessness and despair that darkness brings. And yet in another sense, man loves the dark. John three nineteen. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Like Jesus came onto the scene and he did what you parents do when you flip on the light switch on your kid at six in the morning, right? And they... they curl up in a ball and get under their covers because it's so harsh and exposing the light. Jesus was and is the light switch that causes people to hide their eyes. He entered into the slums of our darkened world and people began to see their, their evil thoughts, their evil affections, their evil deeds exposed and they didn't like it. And that goes for both 
religious and irreligious people alike. The irreligious wanted to live by their own rules, like our first parents in the garden. The religious wanted to believe that they could brighten up their own darkness by cleansing the outside of the cup and plate, to use that Matthew language, by whitewashing the tomb, so to speak. Jesus came along and crushed that standard of of goodness, revealing through his teaching and perfect obedience their uncleanness within The light entered the darkness, and you could say the darkness then crucified the light, which helps to make even more sense of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12 in the Sermon on the Mount about persecution. When beacons of light, Christians, shine forth in the darkness of this world, the darkness hates the light and must do away with it. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. That if you're a light, you shine. It's what lights do by definition. In the same way, another thing we've talked about before, that the moon has been perfectly positioned to reflect the sun's light You and I have been perfectly positioned to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be the light of the world. Our light is derivative. It's not self-created. It comes from Jesus. And it's not for our glory ultimately. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That our derivative moonlight glow is ultimately meant to bring glory to our heavenly father. Purpose of our light bearing is that God might be treasured above all things. He's the true light. Without him, none of us would shine. He creates a glow, you could say, in the citizens of his good kingdom, this God-glorifying glow. So that I would say this this morning, if you're not a Christian, here's my prayer. If it hasn't already happened for you, I I pray that the salt and light citizens of the kingdom of heaven would bring you face to face with the king of heaven. That you might fall at his feet as savior and Lord, confessing the darkness and decay of sin within, declaring Jesus like David to be your light and your salvation, that you would become the salt of the earth, that you would become the light of the world, that you might glorify your father who's in heaven. And if you are a Christian, As simple as it sounds, because it's not an expounding of anything Jesus is saying here, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so my prayer is that you would be encouraged this morning that God uses the seemingly small and insignificant to the praise of his glorious grace. Conflict and opposition, yeah, you better believe it. They're sure to come. As we follow in the footsteps of our Savior and King, Paul would go on to say that that for some, to use a different metaphor, we we are the aroma of life, and to others, we are the, the aroma of death. There will be opposition, but there will also be redemption as God moves through his people to bring healing and hope to this world ravaged by the effects of the fall. So that if if I could commend anything to you, it would simply be to live in accordance with your citizenship. And to marvel as you do at the ways that God glorifies himself in and through you. He wants to do that. Your place in this story, it may be small, but it has eternal significance. It matters. 